0: You are often the hardest judger of yourself. And if you can get to the comfort stage of feeling happy with living in your own skin, I think that's quite an achievement. Well, uh, my name's Charles Good, or Charles Barrington Good. Um, My mother was a nurse, so and my father was called Charles, so my mother always hoped I'd be a doctor and I'd be Dr. C. Barrington-Good. She liked the word Barrington, but it got dropped at school. Um, I was born in 1938, and therefore it was just before the Second World War. So a lot of my early life was coloured by the war, Uh, when I went to school, half the class were only children, because you were born in 38, your father went to war, he came back with hardly any money five, six years later, and wanted to re-establish himself, and there was then too too much of a gap. So, and in my early childhood I had very bad asthma so I couldn't run or go to school or preschool so um, my father went to Sydney as a Lieutenant Commander in, in the Navy at Garden Island then he was posted as Secretary to the Admiral in New Guinea so we didn't see much of him during the war. We moved to Sydney uh, but then he got posted to Papua New Guinea and then he got sick in uh, at the end of the war uh, infections and in all of his skin and other matters from New Guinea which meant he I think was in pet uh, Heidelberg Hospital, repatriation hospital, for about three years after the war. So my mother and I used to drive out. She'd drive out to that hospital from our home in Camberwell, three times, three evenings a week, or and then, or twice a week, and then at weekends. So I knew that road very well as a young boy. Um, War was, uh, people don't realize it if you, even though I was young, I grew up in wartime, where you had tickets, ration tickets to get food, ration ticket to get petrol for your car, uh, a ration ticket to take to the butcher for meat. And it became normal, really, you got used to that. And then after the war, People in the street didn't come, the husbands, some of them didn't come home. There was a gentleman four doors up from us in Camberwell who was a young man I always found a bit strange. He did the garden. He was very quiet, hesitant, old. My father said I always had to be very respectful to him because he'd been in Changi Prison. And so you had those situations. My father was member of the Lodge. People do, don't join the Lodge now to any extent. What is the Lodge? But, but it, that was a fellowship of men. Uh, it was a non-Catholic fellowship, I guess. Uh, but people joined it because... Some of the husbands didn't come back from war, and they all agreed to look after each other if they didn't return. So it was really a, a private enterprise safety net in those days. Um,
1: Did your dad talk to you about the war?
0: No, he didn't seem to want to talk to about the war. But uh, if someone, there was a truck driver that used to come down from Sydney for the Melbourne Cup and he, we'd always give him a bed because, uh, because father had known him during the war so there was a special bond that uh, was just obligation and friendship even though they were very different people so the war had a big impact on my life as did having Aspa. so I couldn't go to preschool um, I was registered in Sydney I went along once during about halfway through the year and they couldn't find a desk for me the, the teacher didn't know I was in the class I'd missed so many months I think I only went about five, t- five days that year So when I came back to Melbourne after the war, I was, uh, I went to grade one and I was about seven. So I was a little older than the other boys in the class. Um, But I didn't do that well. I'd missed the year where you learnt the alphabet. So I never knew the alphabet. And I still don't know it as well as other people do. So, during my primary school from 7 to 11, I would be about halfway in the class, and my parents were happy with that. And uh, when I finished primary school at 11, I thought I'd go to Swinburne Tech, or a technical... um, because the others in the class were doing that. It was some middle-income, suburb, Camberwell. The school I went to was Pete Avenue Primary School. It was very good. Uh, and I thought I'd try and learn some skill. Uh, my parents... This, there was a gentleman that came to the class and. If you paid, he gave each of us a test as to your ability and what you were likely to do. And my test came back pretty poorly. I was bad at geography, bad at geometry, or or graphs. And he thought, he gave a written report to my parents that maybe I could be a storeman in some warehouse and father had other ideas. He was hoping I'd become an accountant, as he was. Anyway, I guess the major change in my life was that my father sent me to Scotch College for my secondary schooling. And I wasn't very good at sport because of the asthma I'd had in earlier years so I had no strength in my legs and my uh, chest hadn't really expanded very much, Uh, I played a little football, played a bit of tennis, I enjoyed tennis. Um, And I I was sort of towards a, just, just under halfway in the class in results. And I had no ear for languages, so as soon as I could... I got zero in French dictation, Uh, I failed really French, Uh, and um, therefore I wasn't in the top class as you progress through the school, which were people that did science and maths and languages, and I dropped to the, you know, the B or C uh, class and took up economics and accounting in the latter years, and I enjoyed that, mainly because I had a very good teacher, and in my last two years I worked very hard. My father wanted me to leave school when I finished Scotch. Uh, become a a clerk in his accounting firm and learn accounting at night school and I didn't really want to do that so he said to me well you're not going to university unless you get a scholarship and that pays so that made me work very hard and I ended up being ducks of the school so I guess the message is you can be not doing well at school for a long while, and then if you find a good teacher and you really knuckle down, it can change your life. And it did for me. And I got, in those days, the government were giving Commonwealth scholarships, which paid all your fees. And, and that allowed me to go to university. It was wonderful. So. I did commerce because that was followed from my accounting and economics.
1: So the motivator was really you wanted to go to university. You had to get a scholarship. So yeah. you put your head down. I really down
0: did. Months. I worked very hard. And um, did you? It was, so necessity can be a benefit in in some cases.
1: Mm-hmm when you were going up through school and kind of doing okay but not great and not um doing great with sport which is you know a big part of things here in australia yeah did that affect your self-esteem or you were kind of just happy and had your friends and
0: no i was happy and had my friends because i'd never known any better in fact you know that was better than in my early school school days where I may have been a bit under the halfway part of the class. And in those days when your father was away during the war, and I think mother worked in nursing or part-time, you didn't get read stories at night, or I didn't, or be taught the alphabet or those sort of, any homework or teaching at home. The war preoccupied the whole scene, and mother was knitting or making parcels to send to England. It was a different life. It would, it made me feel that I'd never want the country to go to war or be part of it, unless we had to defend our country.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Frankly, it's the last thing one wants to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. And you were an only child?
0: Yeah, I was an only child. I mean, by the time father came out of hos- hospital, I was about 10 years of age. And he had no money, so he had to sort of start his accounting practice again. He'd started it just before the war. So there's too big a gap. But this was not unusual with my f- mm. friends at that time.
1: I'm just thinking, what you, if yeah, your parents are away? So, do, were you just spending time with other children?
0: No, I couldn't. In my early days, I couldn't go out and play because uh, I couldn't walk more than about 20 yards without getting uh, terribly puffed and have to sit down and rest from asthma. So, um, I didn't see until I went to school in Melbourne at the age of seven onwards I didn't really mix with anyone.
1: And what did you do to keep occupied in that time? I don't
0: know really we were in an apartment block in Sydney and there was a sandpit but I can't remember what I did frankly, I, and, and very little I certainly didn't read or listen to music or develop in those early years the years you're meant to be developing your skills it didn't come my way but still there we are
1: okay so you end up at university I'm guessing education was an important value from your dad if he sent you to well this
0: is oh education was a way of in my day of getting to a decent job and getting a good income so uh, you went to university if you could I did an honors commerce course which is four years but and I studied very hard at that um, The latter two years I went to Ormond College and that was wonderful uh, you really... Uh, A lot of my close friends date back to the years at college, so if anyone had the opportunity to go to college, I'd recommend it. You really make good friendships and uh, a great atmosphere. And you can study more, you don't have all the travel time.
1: So the motivator at university was getting a good job afterwards?
0: Yes, and um, in my day, it was very focused on getting good results in exams, and so uh, you l- you learnt what the lecturer taught you and what they expected you to say in in exams, and you parroted back. A lot of it was rote learning, not. Not advisable today i I don't think I think I would have been a lot better if I hadn't focused on exam results and um, had a broader education D- done some subjects i weren't wasn't good at and didn't worry about the results so much a- and had a broader interest in art and culture and music which I didn't, and reading, which I didn't do. I just focused on on the, um, on the courses. And, and, you know, I finished with 12 first-class honours and six, six, six of the sub- subjects I got the exhibition in. Uh, and was top of the class every year at the university. But that was complete focus. And if I was rec- giving a recommendation to people, I wouldn't do it that way now. I heard a pod the other day, a podcast by Sir Ken Robinson, who was saying that education—we've really missed out in focusing on teaching and trying to and exams and it reduces one's creativity and he thinks we've got education wrong with the focus on exams and a narrow agenda and he went on to say that uh, lecturers uh, train people really to have a career as being another lecturer and it's all focused on the brain, not the development of the whole body, and your physical body as well, and your general health. It's all focused on the head, and the legs are just a way of taking the head to, to lectures. And I, I, there's a lot in that, I think. So that was university. Then I came out of university. Uh, around 1960, and jobs were available then. They haven't always been. Uh, They are available today. So everyone that left uni then got a job, and I thought I'd go into finance. That's what I'd been training trained on at the university. And Ian Potter seemed to be the most dynamic uh, firm at the time in Melbourne, so I went and applied for a job there. And I took the view I wanted to join a, a big firm where I could learn. So the salary I started on was less than I could have got elsewhere. I think it was £1,200 a year. But I could have got 25% more at smaller firms.
1: So where did you get this idea from that you should be in a big just firm? It just
0: came to me that I thought... I needed to continue to learn, so I should go to what was the leading firm. J.B. Weir was probably the leading firm, but Ian Potter & Co. was second and a bit more dynamic and up and coming. And that was a good move. But after a few years, I realised I really didn't have the breadth of training and knowledge that I needed to go further. So I, I actually had an angst, a desire, for more learning. And th- therefore I applied for a Fulbright scholarship uh, to go to Columbia University. And I got scholarship. The Fulbright paid my fares over and back. And I got scholarships from the university to pay all my fees. And so, and it was a two-year course, but I could get a few credits from my course in Melbourne. And if I worked for the whole 12 months with no semester break and did an extra subject every semester, I found I could finish it in 12 months.
1: And And, why did you want to do that? And I
0: had enough money... To pay my accommodation for 12 months. So I went, that's why I chose Columbia as against other universities where I couldn't um, concentrate the course into 12 months and uh, I was worried that I couldn't afford not working for two years. So it was a very concentrated course at Columbia for me.
1: And was that a real? A genuine practical thing that you wouldn't have been able to afford
0: it. If, If I did it again, or was recommending to someone, I'd recommend they go to Harvard or Stanford or Columbia, but do it over two years, and hopefully have enough money to to travel around America a bit during the breaks, and have a wider life. My life's been too narrow. It's only in latter years I've been able to go to, to develop a broader range of interests.
1: So at Columbia as well, you would just... Very, well, Columbia focused. is
0: very intense, especially if you're doing extra courses or subjects each semester. And they give you a lot of reading and a lot of assignments. So that was full on. Uh, fortunately, I stayed at International House, which is at Riverside Drive, near, near Columbia, very close to the campus, and that had student, half American students and half international students, and they came from about 90 countries represented there. So that was a wonderful mixture and getting to know people from other countries.
1: And you went to the U.S. because that was where you went to get the best business education.
0: Well, in those days, that was really recognised as the only place for business education. I know that's broadened into England and Switzerland a few even five, ten years after I went. But in those days, the U.S. was what you went to was where you went to for education in in business. Yeah.
1: And had you been overseas before that trip?
0: Uh, I'd never been overseas before and my parents had never been overseas. I think in their latter years they had one trip.
1: Well, apart from your dad, of course, serving overseas.
0: Oh, well, apart from going to New Guinea, but that wasn't a pleasurable trip. Mm. And I think I was the first in my family to go to university.
1: And were they proud of you for that? Uh,
0: I think Father wondered why I was going. He had not gone and none of his friends had gone to university. He thought I should uh, go into accounting and do the accounting courses at night. But he, he was proud of the results when I finished, but he was lukewarm about me going there.
1: And where did your interest in finance come from? Or what was it specifically about? Well, at
0: school... And at
1: university?
0: Well, at school I got very poor marks in geography, languages, um, science. So the only subjects I did well in accounting and economics and Australian history which I enjoyed so I just followed it because that's the area I seem to have some some ability in
1: and then why finance and not accounting
0: Uh, well as I was pushed early to do accounting I was a bit I thought it was very narrow frankly and I I couldn't see any excitement in auditing and ticking, though it's much better nowadays and much, it's more computerized, it's more more intellectual. But in those days it was just, I I did it uh, 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 one Christmas holidays during my university course to earn money and I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think it was, it wasn't for me.
1: So did you find more interest in markets, or, or at what age did you start investing and find?
0: Uh, only after I started work at Ian Potter. And, uh, I didn't have any money to invest.
1: Or even following stocks?
0: Well, unless you had some money, that was my I point. didn't. And... Uh, I didn't even have enough money to buy a car. But the Financial Review had a competition in about nineteen sixty one or something, where you for six months you picked a portfolio and you could change it and they gave a prize of I think a thousand pounds to whichever whoever won it. And there were about fifteen thousand entries and I put one entry in, you're allowed multiple entries. And I made no changes. And I was lucky it won it, and I, that provided me with the funds for my first car.
1: And that's where you picked all 10 stocks?
0: I picked five 10 stocks. I thought, this is not investing one's real money where you need dividends and you need uh, diversification. This is all or all or none. so pick a pick a metal that might go up and put it all in. And um, so I was fortunate and um, at Columbia, there was a course investment management one semester where you had to have a portfolio and they allocated you industries, and you, um, you got marked on your essays, but also the results of your portfolio were half the marks. And I was given railways and utilities in America, and I could see that I was going to do terribly badly at this because I had no idea of the American market and I didn't even know the the companies that were in my industries. So, I rarely asked questions, uh, at least at the start of the course, but I I said to the uh, professor that he hadn't allocated international companies, and in those days they didn't do much international investing in 1963 and I said could I have that added to my industries and he said sure no one was else was interested in it so I put the whole lot into Australian mining stocks which I knew from being, having worked a year and a half at Potter's and my portfolio went up that much he said he, he could hardly give anyone else a first. It was just luck that it was a time of a b- mining boom in Australia, I think. But again...
1: Yeah. But you had There's a strong just... sense that it wasn't pure luck, like you knew what was happening with these mining A little mining bit, companies. but
0: it was mainly luck, especially the timing. So then I c- came back and worked my way up through potters, frankly, and I, I never changed jobs. Uh, people move around nowadays and probably get more skills and get promotions I just stayed I thought it was a good firm and um, you
1: did I, very I, well at I just stayed well with
0: right? them yeah so, and then in latter life I developed interest in you know a liberalism, a liberal party and culture uh, through the Ian Potter Foundation and that's broadened my life a lot
1: so where did that interest in yeah I guess both liberalism and philanthropy because I'm guessing those values might be tied together how did you start Perhaps they
0: are, but, well, I don't think there's a lot of difference really between the policies in Australia the Labour Party and the Liberal Party except the Labour Party is tied to the union movement and and therefore it it favours unionists unionists and wages and the Liberal Party stands for, more obviously, for freedom of speech, the focus on the individual, uh, a philosophy of a hand up rather than a handout or a heavy hand on you. It sort of favours, Liberal Party favours small business, uh, a welfare net for those who need it, but more creating the environment where people can flourish if they have ambition and work. So that seemed to fit in with my lifestyle so I got involved in that, and uh, stayed involved. And I, I think if you're a citizen of a country, it's good to participate in some of the activities uh, of the community. So I've st- that's been that. And Sir Ian Potter started a foundation, one of the. The first in Australia to be started by someone while they're still living previously nearly all the foundations had been as a result of a legacy in a will or a gift in a will. Um, And in the late 1980s, well I think I always wanted to to be part of a wider community and to contribute and just not focus on money. So during the 1980s I joined a lot of community activities, probably devoted a quarter of my life to it. Uh, I was a senior partner of Ian Potter & Co, or Potter Partners, and that led people to invite you to Joined community, boards of community activities, so in education I, I, I was on the council of Monash University and then I became, after I retired from that I became chairman of the investment committee University of Melbourne. Um, in the arts I was on the board of the Australian Ballet School. Uh, in medical, uh, I was on the Howard Flory Board and became president for 10 years, Um, uh, I was on the Anti-Cancer Council of Victoria, Um, St Vincent's Hospital Board, Uh, quite a a range of activities really and that, that I wasn't actually a donor, I was trying to accumulate some money but I suppose from 1980, so I was about 42. From then on I've always given a quarter of my life to community activities for -for non-for-profits. And then that led, I think, to Sir Ian asking me to be a governor of the Ian Potter Foundation, and I saw the benefits that philanthropy gives to the community. Met some wonderful people in community activities that devote their life to helping others at very modest incomes and get a lot of pleasure out of doing it. And I got a lot of pleasure out of meeting these people, being trying to help them. So after Sirene died I became chairman of the Ian Potter Foundation that was in 1994 and have been chairman ever since and that's I think I've got more I've got as much pleasure out of that as people have benefited from the gifts in the breadth of the uh, breadth of activities in the community that you come in touch with and the absolute wonderful people that are dedicating their lives at very modest incomes to help uh, the disabled or, or the old or in medical research or universities and teaching and so forth.
1: And what are the causes you feel most passionately about supporting?
0: That's a difficult question. If you ask me personally, uh, I would give to Fair Share and Second Bite organizations that recycle food that would otherwise go to waste. It can be uh, some products in the supermarket are near their use-by date and they can't sell them. They give them to these organisations, who can recycle them into, into charities that look after the poor, or make them into nutritious meals and distribute them. That seems to me that you're helping the environment, you're saving product that would go to waste, and you're helping the people that need that meal. So that sort of immediate uh, benefit is, I guess, what appeals to me personally. From a foundation point of view, we take a longer-term view and we would seek to support excellence in the arts, scholarships for Australian artists to go overseas and progress their careers, um, Scholarships at universities to allow those not so well off to fulfil their capabilities, which may be restricted by lack of funds. Uh, we support excellence in the arts. Uh,
1: why do you feel? We look at hmm? why do you feel passionate about excellence in the arts?
0: Well, you're giving a scholarship. You may as well try and find someone that's outstanding and help them go the next stage on the international scene, and hopefully they'll come back and add to the quality of that particular art in Australia. We also support the major organisations, like the National Gallery of Victoria, the Arts Centre Melbourne, Australian Ballet Company, and so forth, which are really pillars. Of developing different areas of our cultural life, so the phrase "a great nation deserves great art" I think is very relevant. Then we give um, we have four pillars actually. Uh, one, the aim of that our foundation is to create a fair, healthy, vibrant. sustainable community. So in fair there's community welfare, vibrant is the arts, healthy is medical research and sustainability is the environment. So we have grants in all those areas. So that that gives one a very broad life, a spectrum of life which I'm very fortunate to have now.
1: Mm And so, thinking back to before you were forty-two, was your motivation like continue learning, but to because you you hadn't had much money previously, so it was like okay, continue earning an income, yeah, to build a life for myself.
0: And I, that, uh, yes, uh, I think it was focusing on my career, and and. I think a little too much, and you're a little too competitive. I think as I matured, I realised that business is a team sport, and to help others, in use, even if they're competitors for the next job, is a better way of going and more satisfying. And I've certainly changed that way as I grew older, and I'd recommend that. Um, it was only when I got to a certain level of comfort financially that I then, and enough seniority that I got invited onto interesting non-for-profit organized the boards of not-for-profit organisations. Prior to that, I'd always given a little time. I'd done fund- gone door to door with a a can for the Berry Street homes and things like that at various times, but it, it was when I got into my forties that I had the opportunity to branch out in a meaningful way and in intellectually challenging way too.
1: So you were, were you competitive in the sense of I want to move up the ranks as quickly as possible? Yeah, I
0: think so. and. I wouldn't advise that attitude. I think you've got to be competitive but also uh, have a broader life earlier and have more a team basis
1: so how, but what advice would how would you give that advice to someone who's saying who's maybe feeling worried that they can't have the lifestyle they you know house prices and all of this and like i should be further along in my career and how am i going to afford to pay for everything and when am i going to you know tick all these boxes that young people feel pressured that they have to do in their 20s and 30s
0: well that's a very hard question uh hopefully their parents can help them but if that that's not so The banks now give very large home loans for houses and I think I'd take the risk and back myself and put a deposit on a house, whereas in my case I rented till I was about, till my late thirties and it was only then that I put a deposit on a house. I, I should have had a higher risk profile and done it much earlier. Frankly,
1: I, I, you I'd were worried s- about taking out a loan. You were worried about. Yeah, having I think mortgage. I c-
0: came from a cautious background, and the wartime experience, and before that, my parents had told me about the depression. So it depends on the economic background that you you're brought up in.
1: Interesting. What, so did you imagine there could be a day where you wouldn't have a job
0: well I didn't marry till late and I didn't have children so I wasn't that worried but if I had a family early I suppose I would be more conscious of that but I don't think I would work as hard as I did at weekends and into the evenings in my early years if I had my time again. I'd give up the desire for quick promotion for a broader, more satisfying life, frankly. That would be my advice. And I think you can do both. And if you have a broader life and you look after your body and your health, I think you can be more productive than just churning away at the job. And there's more to it than just climbing the professional tree. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think it can actually rein... a broader life and a family life can uh, give you insights into personalities and how people think and make you understanding of others so I think it can add actually balance can actually add to your desire you as a person and uh, your acceptance as a leader
1: Mm. I'm very excited for dad to listen to this (laughs) you say this Um, okay so it was kind of only when you were invited to boards that you realised this is really what I, how I want to be spending a yeah, big portion of yes, my life. Yes, but
0: I suppose I showed interest to be invited. But uh, once I was invited, uh, they were fascinating uh, and are fascinating. I remember joining the uh, Anti-Cancel Council of, Australia, uh, of Victoria And we were, it's not generally known, but Victoria led the world in rules about anti-smoking. And we had a uh, a CEO, Nigel Gray, he was outstanding. And he started saying that, you know, restaurants shouldn't allow smoking and things like that. And these were firsts in the world. I think he th- subsequently became president of the Worldwide Organization on Anti Smoking. And then we were sitting around the c- table at one meeting, and it wasn't me, but I was there when that- someone said, Well, look, we've got to get people using uh, sun cream. Uh, but none of the when you go to the chemist, you don't know if it's a good sun cream or not. So we asked various uh, pharmaceutical companies whether they'd rate their sun cream as t- to protection, like 1 to 10, we were asking. And they declined. So we decided to fund a chemist in Melbourne to uh, de-engineer or find out the ingredients of a sun cream, which he was able to do. And we said, we're going to start our own sun cream called the uh, Victorian Anti-Cancer Council Sun Cream and give it a rating of out of 10 for protection if you don't. And then one or two of the pharmaceutical companies said, oh, well, we'll start to rate. And that was a world first from our council, a world first on the rating of sun cream on the tube and we only asked them to go to 1 for 10. Now I go to the shops and you can see plus 30 or plus 50, and it's, very, it's quite common. So some of these co- committees and organisations in Australia, and in, partic- and in my case Melbourne, actually made world breakthroughs. It wasn't me, I was just part of the, the council when it, someone promoted this.
1: Wow, Mm. yeah, because that's the global standard now to have the SBF rating.
0: Mm. Now, I think we've gone long enough for anyone (laughs) to be listening to me.
1: Well, I just wanted to ask, there's three questions I ask everyone at the end that are really quick. Yes. But can I just ask what your proudest achievement has been throughout your career? Uh, or you can say a couple if you can't pick one I can't
0: uh, I suppose I'm proudest that I've matured into being a a citizen of the community and getting pleasure out of helping others and having the ability to do so Uh, you've got to eventually live your life's so that regardless of what other people think, you're happy living within your own skin. You are often the hardest judger of yourself. And if you can get to the comfort stage of feeling happy with living in your own skin, I think that's quite an achievement. And hopefully I've got close to that.
1: Okay, so last three questions how do you stay grounded every day
0: grounded yes what do you mean by the word grounded
1: well it could be something like you're here in your suit and tie in the office which you've been which i always wear a suit and tie i know and that's part of i've read the article where you talk about how important it is for you to come every day well Because a lot I, of people at your age, they're not coming. They're not wearing yeah, a suit and coming to I the office I don't want every to day.
0: just uh, go and play golf. Uh, the benefits of coming into the office, I think, are that you you feel your life's worthwhile, in that you're contributing to others or you're doing things, and, and you get a pleasure in achieving something rather than just being indulgent and enjoying. Uh, I also like meeting people, especially the young people, and that stimulates me and I see how they're going. Occasionally they ask m- my advice, which I think is rather nice. Um, I, I also think that if you keep active, and in my case coming into the office, it helps your mental health and general physical health. So I think I benefit health wise from it too.
1: Mm-hmm so that's the question it's a mental health question how do you stay grounded every day so I'm wondering if that's well, what well there's the always something to
0: do or something to try and work out or initiate so I think that keeps you alert I guess if I was at home I'd start playing bridge or something to keep my mind active
1: Mm-hmm. um Next question: Is there a book that's had a major impact on your life?
0: A book, uh, yeah, but uh, well, I read one recently, uh, "The New Map," which I thought was a good book on the environment. I read quite—I don't read a lot of uh, books because I read a lot of material every day on the economy and world events and things people send me. But over Christmas I've read one or two books and they're mainly, uh, so there's, I'm currently uh, about to read a book by Kissinger on leadership, I don't know how good it is, um, but I've read the book on the environment, uh, the, the new cape and the energy, and I thought that was very good. So. I tend to read, I don't, when I do read, I don't read detective stories. I read something about the world economy or the world political scene or a lot about the environment, which I think is just essential to be conscious of.
1: So what do you do to unwind and not step back from solving all the world's problems? Or thinking about the world's problems?
0: Well when you reach my, my age we've got a lot of friends and uh, we would go out four nights a week to dinner parties or uh, artistic events or something so I've got to the stage where I'm very happy when we have a quiet night at home so it takes care of itself
1: mm-hmm. Okay, last question, what three words best describe, describe the best version of you?
0: Three words? Not clever enough to answer that.
1: Like, just the, when, because you know, we all have days where we're grumpy or stressed or tired, but if you're showing up or, you know, Yes, sure.
0: I'm sure I'm grumpy at (laughs) times. So
1: So that wouldn't be one of the words. But so when you're showing up as your best self, what does that look like?
0: Well, hopefully I'd push my shoulders back a little and not be so round-shouldered. It would be nice if I smiled more, I think. I'd like to laugh more, I think laugh, my wife laughs and I think that's infectious and joyous. I think it's wonderful if people can laugh and um, modest, I'd like to think I had some modesty and humility. Great. Thank you very much, Delia, for the interview.